Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny chats with Dr. David L. Katz, founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, about the value of fad diets. He also offers some reassuring perspective on the current COVID-19 pandemic. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk with Danny Nierenberg. Today, I get to talk to one of my favorite people. It's such a crazy time in the health and food worlds. I wanted to have him back and talk about his new book, uh, COVID-19, and really all things food and, and agriculture. Um, Dr. Katz has a very long bio, so I'll try to sum up some of his many, many accomplishments. He is the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center. He's also the founder and president of the True Health Initiative, a nonprofit organization established to promote messages about healthy, sustainable diet and lifestyle. I am really, really honored to be a part of that initiative. He is also the founder of a very cool startup company developing what he calls a disruptively innovative approach to dietary intake assessment and diet coaching known as diet quality photo navigation. Um, He does a lot of other things. He's won numerous awards and accolades. And most recently, he co-authored a book with food writer Mark Bittman uh, entitled How to Eat All of Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. I think this is Uh, This book is such a great companion to a book he wrote in 2018 called The Truth About Food. Um, uh, So, David, I'm always excited to talk to you. You always make me feel better. (laughs) I have a lot of anxiety right now. (laughs) So thanks for being on the show. I hear you. (laughs) Thank you, Dan. And you're you're one of my favorite people, too. And I'm sure folks who listen to your podcast don't need to hear from me about all the fantastic stuff you do. But I, I just do want to take the opportunity to say how much I appreciate you. That means a lot to me. Um, so, you know, I ask everyone the same first question uh, on this podcast. And, the, you know, it's what's, what is your favorite food memory? And the last time you were on the show, you uh, talked about this great family meal. You have a wonderful family. I think you were in Maui. And it was this great, like, you know, communal family meal where you're just we're all very happy. Um, so instead of that question, I'm going to ask you what was the last thing that you ate? Uh, my wife last night made us this fantastic mix of uh, root vegetables, other sautéed vegetables, uh, I think chickpeas uh, over, uh, I think it was whole grain couscous, uh, side of mixed green salad, uh, not accompanied by a glass of wine last night. Some nights yes, some nights no. Um, uh, but it was delicious and enjoyed it thoroughly. And I haven't yet had my breakfast. I'm a late breakfast guy. So that was the lot. I guess I'm doing the inadvertently doing the 16 hour fast. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my last meal. So, um, yeah, lots of, lots of veggies, uh, chickpeas for protein and it was delicious. Um, let me give a shout out to your wife. You are definitely partners in crime and I know how supportive she is of the work that you do and how supportive you are of each other. So you have a really, um, one of those wonderful marriages and relationships that lots of people aspire to. And, you know, I've, I've seen you both together and it's, it's really sweet and wonderful. So kudos to her and kudos to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm happy to, to add my own shout out to Catherine. And, you know, what we've said for years, Danny, is I'm theory, she's practice because, you know, I, I go around the world talking about nutrition and lifestyle. I come home and she's the one who routinely makes dinner. She's a brilliant cook. So, you know, she actually plates 
the ideas that I'm out there espousing. And, and we've done a lot of work together. We worked on books together. Yeah. We did talks together. We've done cooking demos together. Yeah, she's the best. Yeah, you're, you're a cute couple. It's, it's great. Um, <laughs> so so I, I want to talk about another partnership, and that's your, your relationship with Mark Bittman. I know you've known each other for a long time. He's, you know, I've known him for a long time. He's an incredible writer, as you are. Why write this book about how to eat right now? Why was that important to you both? Well, this is really a time when the ramifications of diet are absolutely center stage. So, you know, we we have this massive global burden of chronic disease, right? You know, as we're having this conversation, everybody's fixated on coronavirus. Um, We'll need to talk a bit about that. But, you know, year in, year out, the major burden on the population of the modern world is, is preventable chronic disease, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes related to diet and lifestyle. And and that burden just keeps mounting up. It's threatening economies. It's taking over the world. We have to be focused with with laser intensity on getting diet right to to mitigate that terrible and unnecessary loss of years from life and life from years. But, and this is more in Mark's wheelhouse, this is also a time when our dietary selection has massive implications for your work, the sustainability of food production, social justice, climate change. Uh, Our dietary choices are the reason we're burning down the Amazon. They are the reason that glaciers are melting. They are part of the reason anyway, a big part of the reason why we're burning down the rainforest in Borneo. And so really everything important in the entire food supply chain has sort of come to a moment of crisis at the same time. Mark has unique expertise in a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I have unique expertise in some of that. We both are real devotees of sort of, you know, kind of in your face sense. You know, we just both sort of take no prisoners. This is the truth. You don't have to like it. You know, I mean, we, we, we don't have a scapegoat to offer you. We don't have pixie dust. Too bad. The grownups are talking now. I mean, that's kind (laughs) of, that's sort of, I mean, that's how we do this. And, and we both do that. So we just started, you know, having this conversation and it grew into a column in, in New York magazine yeah. and then it grew into another column in New York magazine. Those both kind of went viral, which I, I say with hesitation, given what's going no, viral did. at the moment. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and then, you know, the next thing, you know, we were, we were taught, we said, we've got a lot more to say. It's a whole book. Let's do the book and the rest is history. Well, and I think those those Grub Street articles, you know, really resonated with a lot of folks because you were very blunt and you were like, you know, this is how it is. You you talk about, you know, beans and farts. You talk about, you know, whole foods and, and, and how to read labels. It was very common sense for like real people. And I think that's why this book is so important You're because you're reaching real people who are very confused right now. Well, thank you. And, and you know, I, I really do think, Danny, a good way to couch this is it is time for grown-up conversation about diet in America. Full stop. You know, so the grown-ups are talking. It's time for grown-ups to listen. If you're not ready to be a grown-up, go buy a different book. <laughs> and, and, you know, the whole, the whole thing is kind of like that. I mean, absolutely. So, yes, there's a lot of confusion, but there's also a lot of collusion and yeah. pseudo-confusion, right? I mean, you know, Mark says this all the time. You know, when we say a good diet, an image pops into your head. And you know what? It's probably right. I mean, you're definitely more likely to be picturing pinto beans and green beans than jelly beans. And you're much more likely to be picturing almonds and walnuts and donuts. And, you know, on and on it goes. People really know what good food is. But we we sort of 
we get caught up in the, oh, wait a minute, that, you know, the experts have changed their minds again because one new study came out. Now, how many studies on nutrition have been published? A gazillion, yeah. you know, multi-gazillion, but one study in three people gets published this morning and, you know, the news media go wild and we just say, oh, wait, everything we knew up until yesterday, we have to toss out and start all over. I mean, what nonsense. It's such bullshit. Um, you know, I, mean, it, I mean, it really it, is. And, and everybody, yeah, and I think grownups know that, but we, our, our society has so bought into this, it kind of provides cover. So if you want to pretend you're confused about nutrition, go for it. And that way you can keep eating whatever the hell you want and not feel guilty about it. And I think that's how we roll. And Mark and I are both saying, enough. It has massive implications for your health. It has massive implications for the health of the planet. You basically knew what healthy food was before ever we came along. We mostly want to reaffirm what you already knew. We want to combine sense with science. And yes, we also want to get into the weeds where you are legitimately confused. What about gluten? What about lectins? What about alcohol? What about eggs? What about dairy? Uh, You know, all of that we get into. And that's why it's a whole book. But basically, people know what's what. And I I think they kind of need an invitation to act like grownups when it comes to diet and health. People, it's time. Let's do it. Absolutely. So you brought up this idea of collusion and, and, you know, why people are, you know, confused or pretending to be confused. You recently had this this debate uh, with your organization, the True Health Initiative, around um, a study that came out about, you know, meat isn't as bad for you as you think. And, and you and your colleagues, you know, sort of came out on the, on the other end of that. Can you describe what, what, what that whole situation was about to our listeners? Yeah, and, and sadly, you know, it sort of grew into this massive and, and poorly um, characterized controversy as if this had something to do with objections about science. So let's start with that, Danny. You know, I'm a, I'm a research scientist. I, I ran the Prevention Research Center at Yale for over 20 years and published many randomized control trials and meta-analyses. And, and all of my friends and colleagues, uh, you know, are, are in that same space. We see science we don't like, science we think is, is shoddy and, and, you know, dubious conclusions all the time. It's a shrug of the shoulders. It's business as usual. We write commentaries. We send in letters to the editor. But, you know, we, we understand that, you know, we're not going to like every study. We may disagree with the conclusions or methods, but, you know, that, that the way we get the truth is accumulating all of the different information sources and looking at the weight of it. This was not about that. The problem here was that there were multiple studies in a single issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine by one particular group of authors uh, who later were revealed to have ties to the beef industry. Um, all of their studies showed significant increases in death, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer if you ate more red and processed meat, particularly processed meat. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me reiterate that. All of their own studies showed significantly higher rates of death, heart disease, cancer, diabetes with higher intake of red and processed meat. But they then went on to grade the quality of their own evidence as weak And therefore, they published guidelines in the same issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine telling the public, go ahead and keep eating processed meat at your current levels. Now, that is an ethical violation of the first order. It's at odds with the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, it's at odds with the precautionary principle. In public health, the precautionary principle says that if you think the greater risk is over in direction A, even if you're not sure, send people toward direction B until you can rule out the, the danger. 
so, so the True Health Initiative reacted to that. Um, and, and all we really did, by the way, is sort of choreograph a response among a, a global who's who in public health saying, this is outrageous. Mm-hmm. And our concern was not so much, you know, the, the, the authors. Our concern, why would a prestigious medical journal right. take the unprecedented step of publishing guidelines, you know, sort of self-proclaimed guidelines, because this group has no official authority to issue guidelines, um, advising the public to move in the direction where we believe the greater risk resides and, and where, you know, I, I would argue we know the greater risk resides and, by the way, greater risk to the planet, too. It was bizarre. So, you know, we, we basically planted our flag and defended that hill, and I'm glad we did. Yeah, me too, me too. And, I mean, I think part of, of what happened is the media really jumped on this and, and really confused people and, and you, know, so, you know, like you said, changed what they'd been advising people to do before because of this new study. So, okay, now you because, can well, eat as but, much but, meat as you want. Exactly. But, but, you know, here's the thing. Everybody knew that would happen. So, you know, when the, when the Annals of Internal Medicine issued a press release a week before all these papers came out, they didn't say new systematic reviews show evidence that processed meat is harmful, but the evidence is graded as weak. That would have evoked a yawn. Okay, so it says what we already knew, but, it, you know, the evidence is not that strong big deal. They didn't say that. They said new guidelines, no need to cut back on red or processed meat for good health. Wow. So it started with the journal that wanted to provoke a media response. The media saw that and said, holy cow, everything we knew up until yesterday was wrong again. Yay, that's going to attract readers and, and eyeballs. Uh, and, you know, it was business as usual. Another news cycle dominated by nonsense. So that, you know, we now need to wait for the next study to come out that says, wait a minute, that's all wrong. We were right in the first place. And, you know, we basically treat science like a ping pong ball. It's yeah. this way, it's that way. It doesn't work like that. And this, by the way, uh, this, this is one of the novelties in the book. Um, Mark and I devote significant attention to this issue of how does science work? Mm. How are we supposed to gather and collate information so we understand what's true? There's a role there for the randomized control trial, but there's a critical role there for respecting the accumulating evidence over time and sure. for a- applying that rarest of things common sense. <laughs> right. I mean, and we've lost that in, in so many ways. Because the media, you know, takes on these things and, and can be so influential over eaters or consumers, how can folks like you, I mean, you and Mark are already doing it, but how can we educate the the, the mass media better about these issues? Like, you know, I, I they're covering your book. That's great. But what else needs to be done to make the media aware of these things and think think about food more like, you know, grown-ups instead of, you know, just hopping on every trend? Right. Well, you know, it's an interesting question of supply and demand. And, you know, in that sense, it it relates to so much of what you do, um, you know, sort of fostering a a sustainable, nurturing food supply. The, the, The question becomes, what do we focus on? You know, is it the suppliers, is it the demand? Uh, the public demand for silly information about diet, you know, is really great. Uh, you know, it sells. It sells bad diet books. People tune into the morning show to learn about the new diet of the week to hear what, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is pushing today. So, you know, to some extent, we, we really do need to accept that we have to treat health more like wealth as something that serious grown-up people treat seriously. 
that we don't expect a quick fix, that that's, you know, that's a scam. Yeah. Uh, if it sounds too good to be true, it is that this is something we invest in, nurture over time, all of that. So we, we, we need a demand side fix. But I think we also do need to reach the, the media directly. And so at, at True Health Initiative, we, we have two things we're working on related to this. Uh, one is a conference. Right now, we're in the very early stages of planning this, but we're calling it a stand for understanding. And, and we want to address the fact that, you know, how humans know what is true is not based on the one randomized control trial that was published yesterday. So much of what's so important in life, like, for example, you know, kids should not run with scissors, owes nothing to randomized control trials. You know, it's just kind of obvious and, and on public display. Right. There are no randomized control trials telling us that the coronavirus is bad for us either. I mean, we already can tell uh, <laughs> just by looking at the patterns around the world, right? So, so the idea that there's one source of information is wrong. Where do we get our information? How do we know what's true? What's the right way to aggregate information over time? So we, we want to dedicate a conference and actually have the audience filled with influencers, journalists, bloggers, and have the people speaking be a who's who, not just in, in scientific methods, but even things like cognitive psychology mm-hmm. and artificial intelligence. So we thoroughly explore this issue. The other thing we're looking to do and, you know, you do a beautiful job of this at Food Tank. You, you celebrate those entities that, that are, you know, representing these critical issues best. We're looking to do the same. So, you know, essentially to poll our, our globe-spanning council and ask who are the, the health and in particular nutrition media people right. who are doing this best, who are doing right. this most responsibly, and, and then celebrate them and elevate them and Absolutely. amplify them. And, and then Absolutely. sort of by extension, those that don't make the list, you know, ideally start to make them wish they could. Absolutely. That's, that's really great. That's a, that's a great point. And, and getting those people more attention for their work in, in this really sort of noisy media environment is so important. Um, I, I want to go back, you know, you, you and Mark can, uh, are trying to educate eaters about not only, you know, sort of the, the health decisions of what they eat, but also the social justice component and the environmental component. When, when consumers have so much on their plates already, like they just want to eat something tasty, get meals on, on the table for their kids, how do, you, how do we make it easy for them to take all of those different things into account when they're making food That's decisions? A great, yeah, it's a really great question. And, um, you know, I, I, I think Mark brings unique insights into as, as you really uh you know the, the production side and i you know i learned a lot and it, it really was fun to kind of sequester ourselves for several days and just have this conversation and then invite readers to pull up a chair you know the, the good news is you, you could just like you could fixate on hundreds or thousands of nutrients and then try to get your diet right around the nutrients similarly you could focus on a whole bunch of issues okay so i want to minimize pesticides and herbicides mm-hmm. and fertilizers and um, damage to bees and damage to bats and social injustice and transportation. And you know, by the time you're done, the list is so long, you basically just have to clamp your teeth together and not eat anything. So much of what we need to do can be accomplished by focusing on just a few very high-level considerations. It won't fix everything. I, I don't want to pretend that it's perfect. I just think this is one of those times you don't want to make perfect the enemy of good. Right. So I would say two key axes related to nutrition. One is shift from animal foods 
to plant foods. You know, and most modern diets are, are, are very high in animal foods. There's a lot of abuse in that system of animals and people alike. There's certainly a lot of abuse of the planet and it's less good for your health. And shift from highly processed foods to minimally processed foods uh, and to the extent possible, whole foods. Those two shifts are really the two key considerations for improving your diet. If you eat, you know, you replace ultra-processed and highly processed foods with real foods, you're trading up. If you replace animal foods, that would be meat and dairy, with more whole plant foods, generally you're trading up. And then the third key consideration, and I think this is probably, you know, in your wheelhouse, um, is as much as reasonably possible source your food locally. Support right. regional food production systems, decentralized, um, you know, kinder, gentler methods, more likely that the methods are regenerative, that they, right. they care for the soil, and they decentralize the power structure. So the social justice issue is addressed if more people have control over their patch of land rather than all of us depending on you know, huge agribusinesses that control our entire food supply. So, so more plants, less animals, less processed, and to the extent possible, and you know, we, we can't get everything we need locally, of course, depending on where we live, but to the extent that you can source food regionally, locally, that's generally advantageous too. Those three things, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd be keen to hear your insights into this as well. But I, you know, if you had to look at a high level, those are the three key considerations. Yeah. You, you mentioned one other thing quickly, Danny, and that, you know, people should remember. So, you know, Mark wrote How to Eat with Me. Um, it, it's, it, it's funny, maybe it should be called How to Eat but not everything, because, of course, Mark famously wrote How to Cook Everything. Right. And people should remember, you know, he's a brilliant cook, and he's a foodie, and yeah. that's important, too. So, you know, one of the things we haven't mentioned yet, but it really is important, it's not just about being healthy, and it's not just about caring for the planet, and it's not just about social justice. Food should also be a source of pleasure, and that's a theme in the book, too. We, we both very much respect that. Yeah, absolutely. The joy of food is something we forget in these conversations. And I'm so glad you mentioned it. And I, I love your um, term, kinder, gentler methods of, of food production. I think that's really a, a good way to put it. You know, you're, you're talking about this shift uh, from animal-based foods to plant, you know, forward diets or plant-based foods. Then why the heck is keto so popular? Why are people so into that diet? I'm tempted to go with because there's no intelligent life down here and leave it at that. I, I might, I guess I might offend somebody. Um, yeah, honestly, I mean, I, I, you know, as a, as a academic, I, I should be more even handed here. I, I really think it's unbelievably silly. First of all, it's not new. Right. So, you know, people love, I mean, just the new and shiny always, always grabs our attention. By the way, just, just to do a quick pivot here, Danny, so, you know, there have been, and, and I'm in no way um, downplaying the significance of the coronavirus, but to date there have been 41 deaths in the United States from coronavirus, mostly in older people who right. are already sick. Um, there have been as many as 50,000 deaths this season alone from seasonal flu. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's, just, it's incredible the extent to which the new and shiny grabs our attention. And yeah. the same is true with regard to diet. So if it sounds like it's new and if somebody in Hollywood tried it and looks terrific in People magazine, then you just got to do it. Um, I think the, the time, and so the ketogenic diet is not at all new. Um, Atkins introduced mm -hmm. it in the 1970s, reintroduced it in the 1990s. We, we've had 50 years to prove that this was going to be the thing that made us all thin and healthy and it hasn't worked yet. So the likelihood of it working this time around is pretty remote. 
I think it's especially tragic right now because right now, you know, at least this was the case until coronavirus completely took over everything. But really, the, the, the greatest public health imperative of our time is what's happening to the planet. It's the fact that we are burning down the Amazon. We are melting the, the ice sheet in Greenland and the Antarctic. I mean, the, the, the fallout from that. And, and by the way, climate change contributes to problems like the coronavirus, too. We'll have more pandemics as a result of climate change. And, and, you know, all of that ties back to the food choices being made by 8 billion people. And the ketogenic diet at the worst possible time in history is telling people, you know, load up on fatty meat. Uh, you know, the, the implications for both human health and planetary health are devastating. So this is a diet never shown to be maintainable. Most right. people can't stay in ketosis. Never shown to be healthy and never even shown to be safe over the long term. And there's all sorts of reason to doubt it uh, because, you know, that very low intake of, of fiber, that very low intake of plant foods, that, you know, lack of intake of, of fruits and legumes um, it is associated with higher rates of heart disease, gastrointestinal disease, stress on the kidneys, stress on the liver, mm -hmm. on and on it goes. Um, so, you know, if I would say, what if? the only diet ever shown to reverse type 2 diabetes or mitigate the risk of heart disease were keto, we'd have a real dilemma because, okay, I, you know, I can either address my own health or, you know, I can eat in a way that's sustainable and good for the planet. The reality is um, many diets, in fact, all of the good diets have been shown to have exactly that same effect, prevent diabetes, reverse heart disease, mm -hmm. reverse type 2 diabetes and they're known to be sustainable, and they're known to be pleasurable, and they're better for the planet, why the heck would you bother to put keto on the list? Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to tell you what pisses me off is all of these, like, celebrities or, like, you know, type B celebrities or whoever who are in magazines or on TV who are spouting this because people trust them. And, it, you know, I just think it's so irresponsible. So thanks, thanks for breaking it down for me. I, I really appreciate that. Um, before we well, we'll have to we'll have to do another podcast yeah. and tell you what I really think. But yeah, <laughs> I, you know, it's really sad, and it'll be you know it's it lasted longer than I expected. Yeah. Um, but before too long, it'll, you know, the, the blush will be off the rose. It'll get old. We'll lose interest again. You know, like we did in the seventies and the nineties, and and it'll be some new damn thing. Uh, and who knows what silliness that'll be, unless we grow up and decide. And, and by the way, critical point. You know about the blue zones, our friend Dan Butner, where right. people routinely live to be 100. They don't get chronic disease. You know what the most important news about diet is in the world's blue zones where people routinely live to be 100 and don't get chronic disease? I don't. It's that there is, no, <laughs> there is no news about diet. And, and I, you know, I, that's a message we've got to embrace. Yeah. Uh, you know, where, where, where diet contributes the most to years in life, life in years where it's sustainable and best for the planet, Nobody is waiting for some Hollywood celebrity to tell them the right way to eat this week. They eat the way they've been eating for generations. That's the proof that it really works. It stood the test of time. Another point that we make, and you know, Mark's really adamant about this, almost any heritage-based traditional diet is going to be better than almost any diet that was just cooked yeah. up by some renegade genius and, you know, and propagated in the news media. Right, right. We don't need more Soylent and other other stuff out there. Um, so before we turn back to Corona or COVID-19, whatever we're going to call it, I want to ask you, you know, I, I must have been a lot of fun. I know you've worked with Mark before, but really what was your favorite part of putting this book together? 
Um, I guess the way we did it, the, you know, the book reads like a conversation because it actually was. So, you know, Mark and I, uh, we spent several days together at Glenwood Farm in, yeah. in New York. Uh, yeah, beautiful place. And, and, you know, he basically, he would, you know, sort of sit back, stroke his chin and ask me a question. And then I would answer and he would record the answer. And sometimes I'd ask him a question he'd record. And, you know, we, we basically were just having this, long conversation and we would push back and provoke one another and and we we captured you know 150,000 words or something over several days I love it and you know then we had to and then we had to impose structure on that beast so it was you know a, a readable book but it, it literally was a conversation and and we talked to one another the way we talk to the reader I mean you really yeah. this is the conversation this is how it plays out come on, what do you mean? Really? And, right. You know, so that, <laughs> so it, you know, it, it was, it was fun. And, you know, we, we kind of have these complementary um, knowledge bases and brought them together, both learned a lot. Uh, it, it was, it was really a great treat. I'm so glad that sounds really cool. And you got to do it in a beautiful place with fun people. That's really awesome. Um, yep. So now for the reason that we're both trapped in our respective homes, <laughs> working from home yes. and, and, and not on planes or giving talks like we, we both usually are, um, the, you know, the, the reality that everyone's facing right now around coronavirus and, and, you know, figuring out ways to deal with it. And you mentioned um, a little bit earlier in our conversation about the link between, um, you know, health problems like coronavirus and, and what we're doing to the planet in terms of, of climate change. But it's also, you know, we don't know exactly how corona developed there. You know, it, it's similar to SARS that it probably developed in, uh, you know, a, a wet market or a, a factory farm or something like uh, in, in China. It's, it's hard, still hard to say. But a lot of, you know, these sort of new and, and novel diseases are because of, of what we're doing to the environment and how we're producing food. How do you, how do you talk about that to your readers? You know, uh, you, you have this great newsletter that goes out every week. How do you talk about that in a way that doesn't just really just scare the shit out of people? Yeah. Yeah. So th this is scary. We were talking about it before you hit record, Danny. And I think we both agree the virus is scary, but the societal response to the virus may be even scarier. Uh, so, you know, first, a, a reality check in the context of this discussion. Diet is the leading cause of premature death in America today and increasingly around the modern world. And, and it hides again. in plain sight. Can you repeat that? Diet, yeah, yeah, it's crucial. Diet yeah. is the single leading cause of premature death and, by the way, chronic disease in the United States today and increasingly throughout the modern world. And we're talking about, in the United States alone, hundreds of thousands of deaths every year. Hundreds of thousands. Uh, you know, there have been 41 deaths in the United States from coronavirus to date. There have been 50,000 this year from influenza, but diet will kill half a million. God. Uh, and maybe more, because, it, you know, diet is a major contributor to all of the leading chronic diseases. So major cause of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, stroke dementia. I mean, almost everything that winds up on a death certificate, uh, diet is playing a role. 
So, you know, we, we are overlooking these massive risks that hide in plain sight because they're too familiar and they breed contempt. And that's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And one of the lessons I hope we learn from coronavirus is if we're suddenly going to be concerned about every death because everybody's fixated on, oh, my God, someone else died in Italy. Yes, that is important. That's a real person. That's a real family. But so are the people and so are the families affected by the adverse effects of junk as a food group. Right. And that, that happens every day in America. So we need to care about that. We, by the way, we, you know, to, to shift to uh, back to influenza, we, we need to stop the anti-vaccine nonsense. I mean, basically right. what happens is we have a new scary disease and all of a sudden everybody is breathlessly desperate for a new vaccine while all the same people are foregoing the vaccines we have because those diseases are too familiar. Uh, you know, no, I'm not worried about the flu. I'm worried about the flu vaccine. Yeah, well, that's only because we have a flu vaccine and not everybody needs to get the flu. And, you know, when everybody was getting smallpox and polio, everybody was all too happy to roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated. As soon as those diseases go away, we forget the value yeah. of public health and say, oh, you can't trust those scientists. So that nonsense has to stop, too absolutely crucial. But I, I would like to offer those listening a little bit of reassurance about coronavirus because I suspect they're freaking out. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know what to say about our society unraveling other than, uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing about that. I think there are better ways to address this, but I'm not sure the right people are listening. But I can tell you that we're, we're massively exaggerating the risk to most of us. So, mm-hmm. so here's the problem. Um, when, when a new disease circulates, and some people get severe cases. Those are the ones that come to early attention. And when people die of an exotic disease, it's really hard to overlook. Death is hard to ignore. Yeah. When, when people get a very mild condition that looks like a cold or maybe have no symptoms at all, it's extremely easy to overlook. Mm-hmm. And so the result is you get this massive distortion thinking, wow, this disease kills 4 or 5% of the people who get it. That's not true. The best data we have so far come from South Korea, the only country in the world that has effectively done population level testing. So, you know, we've done all of a few thousand tests here in the United States. They've done 250,000 tests or more in Seoul. So they have the best denominator data. Mm -hmm. In other words, how many people are getting infected so we can determine what the mortality rate is. What the data there show is that the death rate appears to be down around 0.7 or 0.8%, so less than 1%. And it's highly, highly concentrated in those over age 80 and then to a lesser extent, those over age 70. No deaths in anybody under 30 anywhere in the world to date, almost none in anybody under age 60. So is this scary? Yes, but you know, mostly it is a disease that's affecting people who are at high risk of dying right. to begin with because they're elderly and have previous chronic illness. Right. And, you know, it, it's much closer to garden variety flu than, you know, the panic and, and preoccupation would suggest. Sure. So for most of us, you know, I mean, people worried about, oh, my God, my family, my children, uh, you can take a deep breath and not worry if there's coronavirus on, on the air because, you know, in all likelihood, if you get it, and many of us will because it's, it is widely circulated at this point, It'll be a mild respiratory illness, and right. you know many of us may barely notice. I do think we should be targeting our protection and interdiction efforts at the highly vulnerable. Right. It's one of the things I don't see happening. Right. We have limited resources. We're sort of we're, we're willy nilly, you know, dispatching them in all directions. 
Um, you know, I don't know that there's a huge advantage really in, in shutting down all the schools, but I think it would be enormously important to put up immediate firewalls, as it were, around our nursing homes, our long-term Absolutely. care facilities. I think we should be doing mobile testing to keep people who are worried they may have it away from hospitals. That's yeah. the last place we want them going, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, I, I, so, I mean, most people are not going to need hospital care, and we don't want them bringing the virus to people already in hospital because those are the folks who are most likely to die from this illness. And on and on it goes. So, I, you know, I think there's a lot that we could do that makes a lot of sense. I, I think temporarily interrupting really big social gatherings, particularly those that are multi-generational sporting events yeah. where older people will mingle with younger people. I, I think we do have to do some of that if we want to interrupt the flow and as they say, flatten the curve. But I really think, you know, the overall risk to most people listening and to their children is much, much less than the constant fixation would suggest. And, you know, if we were this focused on every death from influenza this year, we'd all be freaking out over that because, Absolutely. you know, again, in, in the U.S., for every single death so far related to coronavirus, there have been well over a thousand related to the flu. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes me feel better. I mean, it's about protecting our elders, you know, at this point, it's like taking care of your mom and dad and your grandparents and making yep. sure that they, you know, they have what they need. And, and, you know, in a lot of cases, just staying away from them, you know, not creating a lot of contact, but it, you've, you've made me feel better. And I, I love talking about these things reasonably because it's very hard to find any sort of reasonable communication around Corona right now. So thank you. I, I, my anxiety is lessened. Um, good, good. <laughs> so before I ask my final questions, can you give people a sense of where they can find out more info about the book, the True Health Initiative, and, and some of your other work? Do you want to give out some URLs and some websites? Absolutely. Thank you. So, so again, the book is How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. Uh, if, if, people are not too afraid to go to a bookstore. It should be in a bookstore near you. But if you want to stay home, hunker down and avoid the coronavirus, it's available in all the usual places online, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. I think there's one called Wham. I'm not even sure. But, you know, wh wherever you shop online for books, it should be there. And, um, you know, in terms of learning more about me, Diet ID, the True Health Initiative, uh, the easiest thing would be my website, which is a portal to all of that, davidkatzmd.com. Uh, there's a link there to the True Health Initiative. There's a link there to Diet ID, which is my startup company, where we're reinventing dietary assessment and personalization, all that stuff. So uh, that's probably the, the, the best thing to do, Dan, is just give out that one and let people navigate as the spirit moves them. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll provide it on our website as well. All right. So I ask everyone the same uh, set of last questions. And I don't think I did this the first time I interviewed you. So um, you uh -oh. should just say the first thing that pops into your head. It's rapid fire. Don't don't think deeply about these questions. They're easy. OK. OK. <laughs> your favorite book. The Selfish Gene. I don't know that one. Great. OK. I like when I get Richard Dawkins. Oh, it is. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's awesome. OK. Cool. Um, the person who inspires you the most? It's got to be my father. Oh, sweet. That's really great. And the last one is what makes you most excited about your work every day? The possibility that 
sort of hard-earned knowledge and the advantages of it can be paid forward. You know, when, when I hear back from somebody, hey, you know, you helped me um, live better, share it with my family, uh, that's incredibly rewarding. Uh, and I do periodically hear that. So the, the opportunity to do that again, <laughs> basically. That's, great. that's really great. David, again, you're one of my favorite people. Thanks for making me feel better. Thanks for being on the show. I hope to see you very soon. Stay well, my friend. Likewise, Daddy. Same to you. Take good care. You too. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.